This week's podcast focuses on war poetry, and we're going to be hearing from two extraordinary Hay Festival sessions. The first from 2007 is an edition of Josephine Hart's Poetry Hour with the actors Eileen Atkins and Dan Stevens. The second is extracts taken from Armistice, our World War I centenary commemoration project in which we invited contemporary poets to respond to a work from their own culture and language from 1918. And we're going to hear in this section from uh, Owen Shears and Mareri Topwood from Wales, the Indian poet Tishani Doshi, the German superstar Ulrika Almud-Sandig and Margaret Atwood. First though, let's hear from Josephine Hart's introduction to her section, setting the context of the Great War. Josephine herself was a celebrated novelist, most famous perhaps for Damage, who also ran on the West End at the British Library and every year at the Hay Festival, a poetry hour that celebrated her passionate belief in the value of hearing great actors speaking great canonical works of poetry. We are within measurable distance of a real Armageddon. Happily, there seems to be no reason why we should be anything other than spectators. Henry Asquith, Prime Minister to Venetia Stanley on the 24th of July, 1914. Eleven days later, on the 4th of August, 1914, Britain, no longer a spectator, was at war. Armageddon had arrived with terrifying speed. The war, which many believed would be over in a month, was to last four years and three months and become the most concentrated slaughter, mutilation, suffering, devastation and savagery which mankind has ever witnessed, according to Lord George. Lord George, a doomed generation, 12 million men would die and 20 million would be injured before Armistice Day, November 11, 1918. Rupert Brooks' celebrated poem, The Soldier, perfectly encapsulates the romanticised sense of nationalism that took hold in 1914-1915. The poet himself died on a hospital ship just two days before the launch of Gallipoli on the 23rd of April 1915, and his poem, A Hundred Years On, has extraordinary resonance as still every year 20 or 30 skeletons are turned up by farmers in the fields of Belgium and France. It is of course no longer clear what the nationalities of those combatants were. Here's the actor Dan Stevens. If I should die, think only this of me. That there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth, a richer dust concealed. A dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam. A body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. Eileen Atkins reads the poem Trained by Helen McKay, an American poet who worked in a Parisian hospital throughout the war and wrote in both languages. Train, Helen McKay. 
Will the train never start? God, make the train start. She cannot bear it, keeping up so long, and he, he no more tries to laugh at her. He is going. She holds his two hands now. Now she has the touch of him and sight of him, and then he will be gone. He will be gone. They are so young. She stands under the window of his carriage, and he stands in the window. They hold each other's hands across the window ledge and look and look and know they may never look again. The great clock of the station, how strange it is, terrible that the minutes go, terrible that the minutes never go. They had walked the platform for so long, up and down and up and down the platform in the rainy morning, up and down and up and down. The guard came by calling, take your places, take your places. She stands under the window of his carriage and he stands in the window. God, make the train start before they cannot bear it. Make the train start. God, make the train start. The three children there in black with the old nurse standing together and looking and looking up at their father in the carriage window. They are so forlorn and silent. The little girl will not cry, but her chin trembles. She throws back her head with its stiff little braid and will not cry. Her father leans down out over the ledge of the window and kisses her and kisses her. She must be like her mother, and it must be the mother who is dead. The nurse lifts up the smallest boy, and his father kisses him, leaning through the carriage window. The big boy stands very straight and looks at his father, and looks and never takes his eyes off him, and knows that he may never look again. Will the train never start? God, make the train start. The father reaches his hand down from the window and grips the boy's hand and does not speak at all. Will the train never start? He lets the boy's hand go. Will the train never start? He takes the boy's chin in his hand leaning out through the window and lifts the face that is so young to his. They look and look and know that they may never look again. Will the train never start? God, make the train start! You can find out more about Josephine's anthology Catching Life by the Throat at thepoetryhour.com and there, and indeed on the Hay Player archive, you can find more editions of the Josephine Hart Poetry Hour. And now, on to Armistice. The first of the poets to contribute to this anthology is Owen Shears, the poet from Abergavenny who has, since we began, been the lifeblood of the Hay Festival. Here he is describing his first engagement with the war poets at school. I suppose like so many people, um, they were partly how I actually came to learn about the war itself. Um, it's a strange thing in Britain that 
the First World War poets hold such a special place in the general consciousness? I think partly because they transformed how we think and what we assume a war poem should be. It was only really with people like Sassoon and um, um, Isaac Rosenberg and, of course, Wilfred Owen that the concept of war poetry as a, um, as, um, a poetry of outcry and a poetry of great empathy really sort of entered um, in these islands. Um, uh, 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 prior to them, poetry and war was normally about sort of glorifying the battles. So I met them in school. Um, and I've had one... Um, job as an actor. That was all that I needed to know that the world did not need me as an actor. <laughs> uh, but it was playing Wilfred Owen. So I had this incredible summer where I would get on stage um, every night and I would recite his work, which was such a strange experience to um, inhabit not just the moment of his poems, but that accelerated education of the poet. And I suppose that's what I've become fascinated by in terms of poetry and war. It's how the pressure of war can bring about this accelerated education. And how it really asks of a poet to find a new way of speaking, a new language. And, of course, not only did Wilfred Owen um, specifically transform how we think about war poetry, but really he brought us into the modern age in terms of poetry, I think, in terms of his use of internal rhyme and half rhyme, which there is also some argument to say that he was aware of Welsh language poetry and uh, um, specifically Carl Hanneth, and potentially there is some bleed from that. I don't know if we'll talk about that later. Um, so I suppose they've also led to me thinking a lot more about poetry and conflict outside of that because I became fascinated. Why do we know the First World War poets so well? And why do we only know the poetry of the officers, not the private soldiers? So in years since, I've become very involved in the work of David Jones and Isaac Rosenberg, and, um, and that's fascinating. I really encourage people to go and find their work, to hear um, that poetry from the level of the private. And here he presents both the poem of Wilfred Owens that he's chosen and his response to it. So this is um, a sonnet which in some books uh, is uh, titled um, Sonnet to a Child, but um, in this collection it takes the title from the first line, Sweet is your antique body. Sweet is your antique body, not yet young. Beauty withheld from youth that looks for youth. Fair only for your father, and dear among masters in art, to all men else uncouth save me, who know your smile comes very old, learnt of the happy dead that laughed with gods, for earlier sons than ours have lent you gold. Sly fawns and trees have given you jigs and nods. But soon your heart, hot beating like a bird's, shall slow down, youth shall lop your hair, and you must learn rhyme meanings in our words. Your smile shall dull, because too keen aware. And when, for hopes, your hand shall be uncurled, your eyes shall close, being opened to the world. Um, and this is a poem that I've written um, in response. It's called The Seed. You hear the word first on the lips of a friend, a girl like you, three years old, rising four. And for whatever reason, the way it lifts from her tongue, perhaps, or the knowledge it seems to bear, you hold it through the day as a sound, no more, unattached to sense, but there. 
So later, as I dim your lights and close your door, it is without apparent effort you ask as you get into bed, Dad, what's war? I try to explain in simple words and terms and watch as I do the crease of your frown deepen as if I'm speaking of another world than this. When I'm done, I wait for your response, but there is none. Instead, you lie back in your bed, so I sing and say goodnight, aware throughout of the seed I've sown, then kiss your head and leave the room, and you, alone, with that slow-blooming flower and its unfurling petals of all we've done. The poet Tishani Doshi whose newest collection is Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods, explains India's connection with the Great War. I knew of the, the giants, the Tagores and the Sarojini Naidus who wrote, um, you know, uh, poems about the war. But um, it's not really a huge, um, hugely known part of the history in terms of when we're growing up and going through school. And honestly, I found myself feeling quite cold when I read those poems because they felt very far away. They were writing in response from India to something that was happening there. And I felt because so many of the soldiers who went, one and a half million Indian soldiers served in World War I, and that's large, it's larger than you know, many of the Commonwealth countries, and I think larger than England, I mean, Wales and Ireland put together. So it's a huge number. And many of these men uh, were, uh, were not exactly literate, and there were no Wilfred Owens. They wrote some songs, maybe, and a lot of them wrote letters. So for me, when I was looking for something to respond to, I responded to a letter because I felt I wanted the voice of the man who was in the trench, not from the poet who was at home talking about the war without having been there. And in India, is it known? I mean, do, you talk, do children learn about the First World War through poetry and literature in schools? Or? No, I mean, we... The thing that happened is that in 1918, we, you know, shortly after 1918 and 19, we had the Indian mutiny, and then our, our, you know, be, began our, our, our we had a few struggle distractions. for freedom. <laughs> and in a way, I think that became what we study now in history: is how did we get freedom from the British, who had been there for so many years? And so, actually, to 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 sort of glorify and to study how so many Indians actually went to help the British. Um, was not really uh, pushed on the curriculum. And here she reads both the original letter that she was working from and her response. The letter, it's an extract, and essentially, so many of these soldiers had never left India. They were from mountain uh, villages, very hardy men, and there was an idea that once you cross the black waters or the Kalapani, you lose your caste, you lose your place in the world. So many of them, when they left to fight the war, were, were losing a lot of things, and they came very badly equipped. They arrived in wintertime, and they only had their khakis. They didn't have boots. They didn't have overcoats. So many of the letters talk about how cold it is. <laughs> so... Um, this is um, a letter by a man called Kala Khan, a Punjabi Muslim, to a man called Iltaf Hussain, um, and it's translated from Urdu. This is written from France on the 27th of December, 1917. You inquire about the cold. I will tell you plainly what 
what the cold in France is like when I meet you. At present, I can only say that the earth is white, the sky is white, the trees are white, the stones are white, the mud is white, the water is white. One's spittle freezes into a solid white lump. The water is as hard as stones or bricks, and the waters in the rivers and canals on the roads is like thick plate glass. What more am I to say? Our kind-hearted Sarkar government has done everything possible for us to protect us from the cold. We are each provided with two pairs of strong, expensive boots. We have whale oil to rub in our feet. And for food, we are provided with live Spanish sheep. In short, the Sarkar has accumulated many good and wonderful things for our use. So that's the letter. And there's another thing I forgot to mention, which was many of the letters were censored. Uh, so if soldiers were complaining, those letters would not pass because they wanted to amp up the recruitment in India. So uh, the people who were slightly positive, those letters would definitely go through. Um, so, so this is my response, and uh, it's called Many Good and Wonderful Things. History, too, has a hard time remembering the black waters they crossed, the small mountain villages emptied of men. Death was different then. History is always reinventing itself. Say what you will, but clouds have remained more or less the same. And leaving home is still leaving home, whether it's on a jet plane or climbing the steep path behind the house with a roll of bedding on your back. But to die in a faraway place whose name you can't pronounce for a king who isn't really yours is a sadness history still hasn't figured out. History has been pushing for republics since Lucius Junius Brutus, but men are hardy, is the point, or bull-headed. And you'd think the glories of lice making mansions in their shirts was a paradise they could do without that trench living would make them walk across the front with arms held high, saying, take me quick, I wish only to enter the realms of God. History tries not to be sentimental, although letters give things away. One fool longed for a flute. The world is burning, but he wants to play. Others were mercenaries, gluttons, spies. The wise asked for opium, but write sweets or dainties, they said, otherwise the package might not reach. History needs to forget the dead who cover the earth like heaps of stones, who write, mother, is my parrot still alive? Mother, do not go wandering madly. Sometimes it feels as though the rain has been falling all your life, and the girl you married, child really, history has changed its mind on that, will tire of tending the cattle. Do not worry, this is war, 
and the women, like metaphors, are always steadfast and beautiful. In history's version, she sits under a people tree, your Victoria Cross pinned to the chest of her sari. She has been waiting since 1918, and she is waiting still. So let us speak about love the way we always have, by asking, have you eaten, darling? And what price did you get for the goats? And of course I miss you, but the earth is hard and the sky distant, and if I had wings, I'd fly to you. In Marseille, they said we looked like kings. History cannot really say what happens to men at war. So listen, at night I feed on stars. Do not ask about the cold. They have given me whale oil for my feet. And someone told me if I carried a piece of raw onion into battle, the bullets would not find me. The German poet Ulrike Almut Sandig has become one of Europe's most dynamic and brilliant voices. She is both a writer and a performer. Her collections Thick of It and Grimm are both available in English in translations made by the brilliant Karen Leder, who here reads the translations both of the original Wilhelm Lehmann and uh, Ulrike's own poem now. She's talking also to Rosie Goldsmith, who was chairing this event in May 2018. She is a peerless interviewer and a great champion of European literature in Britain. How does Germany commemorate this day? Um, and how will it commemorate this day in life? Yeah, well... The, the centenary. Um, well, I, can I, I think I can only speak for my generation. And, um, and I think um, ge for, for Germans of my generation and also the younger ones... Um, World War I is seen not really as something in itself, but something as something like the preface for the atrocities in World War II, the preface that made World War II happen or that made it possible, which is uh, logical seen from our perspective, but also which is a bit of a shame because 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 it's I mean it's it's um, it's something that also makes the atrocities of World War One seem very small. And, and there were two and a half million. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, but um, still, when I grew up, I grew up in a very, in a small village in the GDR. Um, quite far away from from any city, and in the in in my village and the villages around, every village village had a com had a memorial stone with the names of the dead soldiers from World War One and World War Two written on it. And we sometimes read them because we knew the family names. Because you know, in villages, you know the family names, and then you see, oh, this is this must be his uncle. This must be his. So, and it was always one stone, and that's for both that's, wars. Yes, for yeah. both wars, and that, that's how it's how, how it's perceived until today. I think. Let's hear the poetry, and um, so Ulrika's going to read in German. Karen's going to. Is that is that right? Yes, yes. we'll do. Right. Thank you. And then you're going to read your 
response. Yes, but I will start. Uh, we will start with uh, Wilhelm Lehmann's poem. And uh, what I forgot to say is uh, that I found this poem in his novel, The Deserter. Um, and it's dedicated to his oldest son, Berthold, who was born in 1918. The same year uh, when, uh, of the one when Wilhelm Lehmann deserted. An meinen Sohn. Die Winterlinde, die Sommerlinde, blühen getrennt. In der Zwischenzeit, mein lieber Sohn, geht der Gesang zu End. Der Schwalbenwurz zieht den Kalk aus dem Hügel mit weißen Zehen. Ich kann es unter der Erde im Dunkeln sehen. Ein Regen fleckt die grauen Steine. Der letzte Ton fehlt dem Goldammermännchen zum Liede. Sing du ihn, Sohn. There's one thing to say about this, which is that in German the Winterlinde and the Sommerlinde um, uh, winter and summer linden are translated in English as narrow-leaved linden and broad-leaved linden. And although Lehmann was a very precise nature poet, I hope he will forgive me what I've done in the interests of poetry. <laughs> the winter sweet, the summer sweet, bloom apart. In the time between, my son, all the world is quiet. The swallowwort draws chalk from the cliff with white teeth. Through the dark, I see it, dark beneath. Raindrops fleck the graying stones. The final tone is missing from the yellow hammer's song. You sing it, my son. My response to that poem that ends with music uh, should be musical as well, I thought. That's why it's a rhapsody. And yeah, it's dedicated not to my son because I don't have one, but to my daughter, to Matilda. Rhapsodie vom Verlieren nach Wilhelm Lehmanns An meinen Sohn. Die gelbe Decke, auf der ich dir Verse über Verse vorlese. Der unendliche Raps auf dem fast unendlichen Feld hinter dem Haus meiner Eltern. Mein Kind, sie blühen getrennt. Vom Satelliten gesendet, welcher genau in diesem Moment Garten und Haus überfliegt, ruhen wir zwei auf dem äußeren Zweig eines Fraktals aus Quadraten von Decken und Raps und du so, Mama da, ein Käfer. Mach den sofort weg. Merke, mein Kind, dieser Käfer hier ist eindeutig eine Ameise auf der Suche nach dem Heimweg. Ich puste sie cool ins grüne Chaos zurück, während du mir auf den Rücken kletterst und schreist, da überall Käfer, sie greifen uns an. Merke, wenn hier einer angreift, dann sind wir das, Parasiten auf gelben Decken, auf gelben Decken, auf gelben Decken. Wenn wir es nicht tun, 
dann greifen andere an, denen wir unsere Waffen verkaufen. Weg damit, oh! Blühende Quadratur, 100 verwunschener Jahre nach einem verlorenen Krieg. Die Jahre rasen auf gelben Teppichen über uns weg. Ich hoffe, ich lehre dich noch das Verlieren, bevor ich mich auf meinen eigenen setz, auf der Suche nach dem Heimweg. Ich hätt's schon mal vor. Merke, die Angreifer sind immer wir. Die Angreifer greifen nie auf ihrem eigenen Terrain an. Die Angreifer liegen immer auf Decken im Sommer, neben unendlichen Feldern von Raps. Eben, was also, Kind, fürchtest du dich? Wir sind unbesiegbar, schreist du. Wir sind die größten Parasiten. Du lachst wie die Sonne in deinem Rücken und ich sage... Rhapsody of Losing, after the poem To My Son by Wilhelm Lehmann. The yellow blanket where we sit while I read you poem after poem, the endless oilseed rape in the almost endless field behind my parents' house. Child, the two of them bloom apart. Transmitted by a satellite that is passing high above our house and garden at this very moment, we too are resting on the outermost branch of a fractal made of squares of blanket and rapeseed. You say, Mummy, look, a beetle, make it go away now. But look, my child, this beetle is in fact an ant searching for the way home. Coolly, I will blow it back into the green chaos while you clamber on my back, shouting, Look out, there are ants everywhere. They are attacking us. But see, If anyone here is doing any attacking, then it is surely us, the parasites on yellow blankets, on yellow blankets, on yellow black. If we don't make them go, others will come, the ones we sell our weapons to. So make them go away, will you? Oh, this flowering quadrature 100 blasted years after a lost war. How the years race by on yellow carpets, leaving us behind. I hope there will be time to teach you losing before I come to rest on my own mat, searching for the way home. See how I'm chasing on ahead. But know this, the attackers They are always us, and the attackers never attack their own terrain. The attackers are always lying on their blankets in summer next to endless fields of oilseed rape. Just so. What's wrong, child? You are scared? 
We will not be beaten, you shout. We are the biggest parasites. You laugh like the sun at your back. And I say, almost. The Welsh poet Mererid Hopwood was the first woman to win the Bardic Chair at the National Eisteddfod in Wales, which is a very, very big deal. She is a linguist, a teacher. She gave in 2020 at the Hay Digital Festival the Anthea Bell Lecture, uh, What's Wales in Welsh, which is in all our time across all our territories, one of the most extraordinarily beautiful, inspiring events that we've ever had the privilege of staging. Here she is talking about Heath Wynne and the moment, one of the most iconic moments in the whole of Welsh culture in the 20th century. I'll let her tell it. Hedwin represents what must have been one of the most poignant moments of grief in the whole of the history of the First World War for us in Wales, because he too uh, won the chair. Uh, he had sent in his winning poem from the trenches, uh, and um, by the time the Eisteddfod came about, in September 1917, uh, he himself had been killed on the last day of July in Pilkhamridge, Passchendaele. And so when the pacifist adjudicator, Tegwin Jones, announced that Fleur de Lis, which was his nom de plume, uh, would be winning, and the archdruid called out his name to great fanfare, three times he called Fleur de Lis. And of course, Fleur de Lis was dead. Um, and the chair, because we actually do win chairs. Some people in England think that it's a pretend chair. Um, <laughs> but we in Wales know these are really whopping, big, enormous chairs that we get to keep. And they're where often. Did, where did you put then? Oh, I put mine in the living room. It's a very useful chair, as my good friend from Neath said when she saw it, because it's a very plain chair. She said, at least you won't have to put any throws over it. So there we go. It, it's lovely. Heath Wynne's chair was draped in a black cloth and carried back to Trausfynydd, Arysgwrn, where it still is to this day, known in Wales with great love as a Gadairdi, the black chair. And what is striking for me about Hedwin as, as a hero in many ways is that the statue for him in his home village, Trausvanith, depicts him not as a soldier, but as a shepherd. And it's for that that we honour him, a poet and a shepherd. And here are the poems in Welsh by Heathwyn and Mererid Hopwood. There are English language translations of both poems by Mena Elvin, in The Echoes Last So Long, the e-book that's available from our website in the shop. Two things need to be noted. First, despite the title Araror, the hero, which was the title for Heath Wynne's winning a Steadvod poem, he does not glorify war, nor the plight of the soldier in his owdle. Um, and the poems that I have chosen by him are explicit in their condemnation of war and greed. Secondly, you will hear an English phrase in amidst my Welsh. I have borrowed this from the RAF, who have given one of their missiles, 
the, in my view, cruelly poetic name, Storm Shadow, and who call the kind of stealth warfare exercised as recently as this April in Syria, apparently in our name, at least I find it hard to believe that this is called Fire and Forget. And I would ask you, if you've got time in the bookshop after, um, I've brought the White Book of Peace from Camarthen, Llyfr Gwyn Cerfyrddin, uh, in which you're all very welcome to join the likes of Desmond Tutu, who visited Wales uh, not so long ago, and declare that you too would rather see this world, this Wales, a place of peace. Felly, um, <laughs> Soned yn y mateb i y rhyfel a'r blotyn di gan Ellis Humphrey Evans heddwyn. Gwai ni, pan geor pym peledryn hael yn ddwrn dan gysgod storm, pan weud o glaw y bore naddion dir heb adael trail ar ddwylo'r diwiau, dim ol chwys na baw. Gwai ni, pan glatio coin cleddyfau'r gwynt ymhennau mamain nhw, anbyd ni'n gân. A hi raith hardd yr hen delynau gynt yn suo cryd ein holl freiddwydion man. Gwai ni, am hawlio'r ser a'r lleiad bell a'r cwmwlair sy'n cylchu'r glesni maeth. Gwai ni, am sarnu'r drefn, er gwybod gwell, a byw heb weld y cynron yn y graith. Gwai ni. Gwai fi. Am fod yn rhan o'r set, sy'n gwneud dim byd, ond ffair and forget. And we finish with the Canadian poet Margaret Atwood, paying tribute to her countryman John McRae's famous poem, Flanders Fields. Right after um, writing this poem, he, he himself, of course, died. So it's, it's another one of those stories. He was, uh, he was there, he, he wrote a poem. It became unknown to him, a very famous poem, and, and then he died. Uh, and I'm old enough and if you count the years, I'm old enough to have known people who were in World War I, because if you go from 1918 to 1939, when I was born, and then to 1949, uh, sorry, sorry, 18, 18, 18, um, it's only 30 years. And what do you, what do you, what is your earliest memory of, of, of the First World War poets? I mean, did you, le did you learn them in school? Or? We learned Flanders Fields relentlessly. <laughs> and uh, that is still recited at every Remembrance Day ceremony in Canada. The World War I was a very big deal for Canada because a disproportionate number of Canadians were killed in it. And therefore, all the war memorials that you will see in Canada were put up then, unlike the United States. So in the United States, it's going to be the Civil War, uh, World War II, but not much World War I. Um, Canada, it's always World War I, to which were then added World War II. 
You've um, heard all the poets here today, and I think we've all been overwhelmed by how wonderful some of the poetry is from other, other countries. I think that's where we're missing a link, isn't it? We don't know enough about the poetry from around the world commemorating war, war poetry, basically. Yes, there is a lot of it around the, the world, um, and people have done big anthologies of it, uh, and usually they're peace anthologies rather than war anthologies exactly. Uh, none of them say any more the way they used to in the 19th century, let's have a war. Um, people aren't doing that anymore, but they used to. Now, you're going to read us um, the famous poem, and yes. you're going to read us your response to the famous poem. Um, so why is it so Canadian? It's a ghost poem. It's a ghost poem. Yes, Canadians are very elegiac. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they go in for dead people quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered where, what so, you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, so so I, did, I did put quite a lot about this in my novel, The Blind Assassin, because the father in that novel comes back from World War I minus some parts uh, and is involved in building one of these commemoration um, statues and uh, people really didn't know exactly how to commemorate it. There, there was some confusion about what it was for, you know, and there was quite a lot of argument back and forth about that. So some towns did statues, some did memorial skating rinks, for instance, uh, all kinds of different things, but they're always there. You'll find them in every town. So I'm going to um, read my poem, which is about my grade five class reciting this poem, but first I'm going to recite this poem. And do you like this poem? I'm, I'm um, engraved with this poem. It's not a question of liking it. <laughs> There's, I have no choice. <laughs> so I'm going to recite it off by heart. Thank you. <laughs> Margaret Atwood. Thank you. If, if you want to know why it was poppies, uh, there's a wonderful book called Weeds by Richard Maybe, um, a, an English person, uh, and it's about weeds. And uh, one of the places he talks about is, is World War I battlefields. Weeds come up when there's disturbed earth, and that's why there were so many fields of these um, poppies at that time. In Flanders fields... In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the skies, the lark, still bravely singing, flies, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw a sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we pass the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies blow in Flanders fields. It's a, it's a very adaptable poem because the, the foe changes. So it's really adaptable to any group that has been wrongly killed and wants the living to remember 
unlike fire and forget. They want Hamlet remember, and um, they want redress. I'm very keen on having a monument built to murdered journalists, um, murdered war journalists in particular. People are now just basically killing them, are they not? My grade five class reciting in Flanders Fields, Remembrance Day. The echoes last so long, 30 years on, the chorus continued to intone. It was always a ghost story. The dead were speaking through our nine-year-old mouths, line by fumbled line, reciting the fields of blood-red poppies, the singing larks, the guns, the shattered faces telling how their once living hearts had bled and also loved and how their hands had failed. But what about the torch? What was it and why past? Do not break faith, they whispered, and we promised. But why died? But faith in what? Not in, but with, they said. Faith with us, unsleeping, do not break. Learn it by heart, they said. So we did. Thank you for listening to this Hay Festival podcast, which was brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers, our lovely friends and sponsors. Next week, we'll be back with Climate Crisis, Nick Stern, Christiana Figueres, Gabriel Walker. And until then, there are 8,000 films and audio recordings on Hay Player Archive. Do please subscribe, share, tell your friends. It's an amazing treat.